Hey, it's Diane and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists. And you're listening to Global Caveat. Today, we're going to talk about ethics in public health, policy, and research. This episode gives us a lot to think about and digest. So take notes! Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get started, we want to thank all our supporters who make Global Caveat possible. We appreciate your shares, your money, your subscriptions, and your reviews. You can become a Contagion by signing up as a patron for as little as $1 a month. And this season, we have new content on Patreon. We will be hosting two Q&A sessions every month, one with us, your favorite scientists, and one with different guests we've had on the show. If you have any burning questions, requests, or things you'd like to ask with the privacy of anonymity, this is for you. Now let's dive right in. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Professor Danielle Goldberg, a lawyer, historian, and public health ethicist. All right, let's dive right in. Super excited to have you on here, Daniel. Do you prefer Daniel? Do you prefer Dr. Goldberg? Oh, goodness. No, no, no. Daniel is fine. Please. Daniel is fine. Okay. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Daniel, for this time with us. Before we start talking about ethics, can you tell us just a little short bio about yourself and then any contact info if people want to reach out to you? Yeah, so uh, I'm Daniel Goldberg. I'm core faculty in the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. So I have faculty appointments in the Department of Family Medicine in the School of Medicine and the Department of Epidemiology in the School of Public Health. So I have unusual training. I'm trained as a lawyer and I'm a historian uh, and I'm a public health ethicist. So I I sort of do all those things. I focus on non-communicable disease and chronic illness, so social and structural determinants of health, uh, inequalities. Um, structural violence in general, uh, particularly focus on chronic illness. Um, that's really one of the, the thing that I spent a lot of time talking about. And in the last three to five years, I've made a particular focus of my work on health stigma. Awesome. awesome. And where can people contact you? I'm very Googleable. So I'm very uh, Twitter. You can find me on Twitter for sure at um, prof underscore Goldberg. Um, you can also email me at very just Google Colorado bioethics in my name and you'll find it. Yeah, once you're faculty, I feel like just search your name and you're up there on the internet forever. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You can't hide. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I, Diana and I are actually really excited because we've been wanting to have someone on to talk about ethics and public health for a really long time. Yeah. And you seem to know your stuff. (laughs) Just maybe. (laughs) You know, bioethics professor, law degree, and all that. So, yeah, I... I don't know how to start because there's so much that you, I feel like you do, but you did send us that syllabus, which I looked over. How do you typically start talking about ethics in public health? <sighs> That's a great question, Diana. Yeah. So um, how do I start talking about it? I think there's a couple things that I ha- have to start out with immediately. Um, and different public health ethicists, which is a small group, by the way, there's probably less than 100 people in the world who say they do public health ethics. So we're, we're small mm-hmm. but mighty is what I usually say. Um and I think um, my approach to it is a couple different things. Immediately, we have to th- understand what makes public health ethics different. And that's usually where I start, right? So why, why is it different than healthcare ethics, which is what's tended to dominate fields of bioethics and applied ethics, at least in the West, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so immediately, we start talking about what makes public health ethics different. And there are, some, I think, some pretty important things about that. Most notably, one, we're talking about groups and not individuals. In healthcare settings, we tend to focus more on individuals. In public health, we're always talking about populations. And that actually makes a huge difference 
Um, it's not, it, it's called the fallacy of distortion, right? You can't go from um, individuals, right, to groups. Yeah. Um, groups, oh. Group behavior is different than the aggregate of individuals, even though they're composed of individuals. So the analysis actually has to be a little bit different as well. And then the second thing is I usually emphasize this, and this sort of follows from the first, is the principle that bioethicists sort of made their hand in North America was the, the principle of respect for autonomy, right? Yeah. Um, but again, that is one that generally applies to individuals. It's not groups which have autonomy. It's us as individuals who do. Hmm. Sort of the redheaded stepchild of bioethics was always justice, right? Um, and justice was understood, I think, quite narrowly in terms of access to care as opposed to larger issues of health and its distribution in human populations, right? And so when I start to teach public health ethics, that's what I really focus on. I say, you know, public health ethics is fundamentally about justice, um, which is unfortunate as, a, as an object of study because justice is super complex, as it turns out, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I sort of do it for a living. And to be honest with you, half the time, I'm not sure I really understand what I'm talking about, right? Because <laughs> it gets very complex very quickly, right? Um, and... Sure. Um, it really requires, I think, some sustained sort of study and engagement. So that's usually where I start. One, public health is different from healthcare. And two, we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about justice, in particular when we do public health ethics. Hmm. I'm thinking human rights and ethics go hand in hand, um, although there are different ways to talk about it and teach it as well. I feel like a big question when we talk about public health and global health is who governs what's right and what's wrong? Like who determines what's ethical and what's not ethical? I feel like I always grapple with that, so I don't know how you grapple with it yourself. It's like you're an, it's like you're an ethics student already, Susan, right? <laughs> like, uh, um, and the reason I'm sort of smiling when I sort of say that, what I mean by that is, um, you know, a lot of the time, some of you, if they get to be like a really difficult problem in, say, like public or global health, right? Um, uh-huh. We just go back and forth, and it's a case on which reasonable people of good conscience can disagree, right? Like, you, mo- it's not the case. There, there are a lot of problems where there's like three or four different plausible answers, and they're all plausible. It's not clear at all which one is sort of the right, you know, the ethically optimal answer. And so a lot of times what bioethicists do is then they switch to the question you asked, Susanna. If we can't figure out what's the right answer, then we can figure out who gets to decide, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, and so it's a really important question um, about who gets to decide because eventually sort of, you know, the, the cliche, the buck has to stop somewhere. We can keep talking to each other and we can keep watching each other. But eventually, especially when you talked about practical ethical decision making and, and, and in things like policy, which is where I sort of center a lot of my attention, you know, we got to sort of implement a policy here. We have to make a policy decision about what we're going to do and who are the ones who get to decide that turns out to be critical. Um, and then you get into, you know, things like deliberative democracy and public reason and whose voices get heard and whose voices don't, who's in the room where it happens and who's not. Um, and those okay. issues are just, I mean, they could not be more important to sort of ethical deliberation, I think. Sure. So I think I want to form this question carefully because it could get really convoluted really fast. So as a global health researcher, I... And I think in today's political climate too, you, you're hearing a lot of people from stigmatized or marginalized backgrounds coming out and saying, our voices need to be heard more. The system is against us. You know, you hear terms like the system is, is for white supremacy or white people. Like there's a certain advantage there. Now, as a public health ethicist, how true is that? How true <laughs> is that? That's an interesting question. Yeah. So. Usually when someone says, how true is that? I think that it's actually an empirical question, 
right? Like, okay. right. It's a question we would like go out in the world and sort of study, yeah. right? So, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I don't know if I'm interpreting your question correctly, but, but <laughs> you know, in a global public health context, there's no question in my view that it's still empowered and privileged groups' voices who is heard the most, right? Okay. And um, those tend to be, of course, those tend to be white people. Um, uh-huh. um, those tend to be people who enjoy various perquisites and privileges, right? And so, yes, of course, those tend to be white people and they overwhelmingly tend to be men, right? Uh-huh. And we know that that's true in a global health context as well. It's been pointed out, you know, where is global health politics centered? You know, whose voices are really sort of moving agendas, you know, and, and determining not just what happens, but what gets prioritized, what gets discussed, you know, what's left out, what health problems aren't prioritized, you know? And so, yeah. There's no question that, in my view, at least in public and population health, in global health, that that this is what happens, right? That marginalized and stigmatized voice, the voices of marginalized and stigmatized peoples just aren't heard. Um, and there are some efforts to make it better. I mean, reasonable people can probably disagree on how well those efforts are doing. Not well enough <laughs> yeah. is, 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 is the definite answer, I think. I don't know. Does that, does that answer your question, Susan? I'm not sure. Yeah, it does. And I, I, and I, when you said it's an empirical question, I mean, that definitely resonated with what I was thinking. So I was like, you know, I feel like a lot of people can have narratives that are just as valid or personal experiences or um, perspectives. But, you know, we're three researchers right now talking about <laughs> global health. So my mind automatically goes there. Like, you know, what are some, what's like evidence, you know, that there is structural violence out there? Because structural violence, I think that's a pretty big word that if you haven't spent some years hearing it all the time, it's a really abstract concept. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. So, 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 just yes, first of all, it is abstract. And I think it, um, I think Farmer explains it really, Paul Farmer explains it really well in some of his work. And so, like, for example, when I teach it, that's one of the things I do um, is, you know, let's, let's try to make this as concrete as possible. I'm a public health person, which means I'm a pragmatist, you know, so I don't um, go around teaching tons of theory to people. Um, uh-huh. I'm not sure I'm good at that either, to be honest with you, right? <laughs> so, but as far as examples, you know, yeah, there's some good examples. So one of the things I often will start with, for example, and, and I, I'm not regarding all like my students, I'm just thinking about how I teach these things in general, uh-huh. you know? Um, and one of the things I, I, I tell people is I say, let's look at a globe, right? So if you were to draw a line around all the wealth in the world, what would that line look like? And most people say, geez, it looked pretty much like the equator, wouldn't it? Right. <laughs> with, with the exception of like Australia, basically, and maybe a few other places. Right. But like, it's shocking. Right. And so then the next question I ask is, to what extent does anyone think that's natural? You know, like on the eighth day, all the wealth in the world basically was concentrated in the global north, <laughs> you know, and people start to giggle because they realize, no, that's not true at all. Like these things are caused. You know, and that's what I spend a lot of time thinking about, both as a historian and as a public health ethicist and lawyer. You know, these things are caused. They're caused by human agency. They're caused by structures that we have built over many hundreds of years, right? It didn't just happen like that. It takes time sometimes. You know, the fact that the wealth is so concentrated and that, you know, the poverty and deprivation and the immiseration is vaster in a breadth sense you know, in a certain area of the world can't be accidental. And then you start to think about the history of colonialism and imperialism, right? Um, And then you bring in, you know, um, structures of racism and colorism, you know, of course, which are hugely important in the stories we're trying to tell, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. It's not an accident that there's so much deprivation with black and brown people and people of color, right? And that they're concentrated in the global south. Although those peoples are also in the global north and you find the same kinds of deprivations as well, right? So part of right. the same structures you see. And so that's a long-winded way of saying that's often how I will start trying to help people understand that, right? Like that we've built these structures, you know, and that in as much as they immiserate and deprive people, they are a form of violence, You know, and so we have to think about what that means. And then you can get more specific in sort of country, region, community specific ways. And that's where Paul Farmer's stories as an anthropologist are so helpful. I think. Uh, Is that, that's a, most of my answers are long winded, y'all. So I hope. Oh, no, that's fine. I'm I'm really enjoying it. I'm like, wow, I should go to his class and sit in it. (laughs) This is like the most public healthy kind of conversation I've had in such a long time. My brain is just like trying to catch up. Well, yeah. oh, doing a lot of clinical stuff. There are reasons for that. I'm kind of, I started out thinking, and this probably is relevant, right? I started out my career thinking I was going to do clinical medical ethics. I come from a family of doctors, you know? Mm. And the story of how I came to public health is, is I think, relevant. I, um, yeah. I was fortunate to have a, a professor early in my PhD program took a class on ethics and health policy in my, my PhD program. And they assigned a book called Is Inequality Bad for Your Health? And this book is um, it's a replication of an essay that was published in Daedalus. And it's actually a collaboration of a couple of philosophers and uh, social epidemiologists, Ichiro Kawachi, right? Huh. Um, we all know and love, right? <laughs> so, um, but I read this book and it was really all about sort of social determinants of health on a global health scale, basically, right? And it was, to be honest with you, I come from, like I said, a family of doctors and I just didn't realize. I was like, wait, what do you mean it's not medicine? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? That's not it. And when I say it, I mean, of course, you know, medicine and healthcare services are important because no matter how we structure society, people will get sick and I think we should take care of them, right? But that, you know, it's not really the prime determinant of health and its distribution in human populations or other things which are almost certainly significantly more important, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, structural right. things. And so um, what happened was a sort of bomb went off in my head, to be honest, and it's never stopped. It's never gone out, you know? So this has been now 11, 10 or 11 years. And I sort of just said, you know, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I want to think and talk about structures, you know? And and this is where that came from. And so I'm pretty hardcore about keeping what I think is a public health mentality, you know? And I think Mm -hmm. that there's people who disagree with this. I'm not saying that that there isn't an alternative view because there is. But in my view, it's separate and it should be separable from the provision of healthcare services. Do you get resistance from medical students or people who are actively practicing medicine with your views on that? Yes. (laughs) Of course I do. Um, Of course I do. But I've also been teaching this now for some time, right? So what Mm -hmm. I'd say is, and, you know, I'm really sort of, you know, education is what moves me most, you know? And so I take it very seriously. I take the scholarship of teaching and learning very seriously. And I try to do a lot of learner-centered approaches, right? To the extent that there's pushback, which there is, you know, that my object is not just, I, I don't like the idea of debunking. That's not, I don't think that's a good role for a teacher, to be honest with you. It's necessary on occasion, but I don't think as like a general framework, that's a good idea. You know, I think it's really, especially when you start to talk about health professional and graduate students, I really think it's about, and it sounds trite and I apologize, but I really think it's more about exploration, you know, um, and and I'm a I'm a guide, but I'm not an oracle, and so partly what I've developed are ways of I think helping people who are resistant to this idea on their way. And if at the end of the day, to be honest with you, you know, Diana and Susanna, if people disagree at the end of the day, if it's an informed and scholarly disagreement, I'm okay with that. Yeah, There's room yeah. for reasonable people to disagree on this one. I mean, I think I'm right, but <laughs> <laughs> don't we all? Well, you know? what are some of the disagreements, or common disagreements that you get? Yeah. I can be very persuasive. So, so <laughs> it's a skill and, and I have training, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. when I say that, I guess I come armed with a lot of data, 
right? And that's one of the things that I think not makes me different, and I mean this since I'm not like a unicorn, right? But you know, a lot of bioethicists come to this work with you know exclusive training in the humanities, which is great. I love the humanities. I'm a humanities scholar. I'm here for it, right? But I'm also a public health person, you know, um, and I have an appointment in the Department of Epidemiology, and that's not an accident, honestly. You know, I spend and I have spent a lot of time reading a lot of epidemiology, and it's a big part of what I think about, you know. And so, if someone wants to doubt, they say, "Look, it's not social and economic conditions aren't as important as you think they are." I've got a lot of evidence, you know, (laughs) on which to base. I think a pretty persuasive argument that it really is. I think you know what someone could say is there are some moral claims that are interesting. So, for example, um, we spend a lot of money on emergency care. In the US, right? It's almost certain that given what we know about social and economic conditions, right? If we were to reallocate a substantial portion of the funding we spend on emergency care to upstream action on social and structural determinants of health, we would have a larger impact on population health. I think that's almost undeniable based on the epidemiology. But there's still an interesting moral argument, right? Because does that mean that if you are an emergency provider, that someone who shows up sick in front of you, whose life you can save, you have to kind of turn them away because we're going to funnel that money, you know, into public health interventions that may help people who aren't even born yet, that's a problem, right? You know, I mean, I'm not sure that that's correct, actually, you know? And there's a pretty plausible claim that we can't do that, that so-called what we call identified victims have a greater moral hold on us than statistical victims, unidentified victims, which is mostly what we're doing, right, in public health. We're helping people who, we know we're helping 30,000 people, but we don't know which 30,000, you know, and some of them may be Mm -hmm. intergenerational, like if we start to talk about climate emergency, some of the things we're trying to do are not for us, they're for for future generations more, right? Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, I come on with a lot of data, but I also recognize that there really are, there really is room for reasonable people to disagree. And to the extent we're all engaged in conversations about what we want public health to do and be and what we want global health to do and be, that's healthy, I think. That, that's good, you know, as long as it's informed and as long as, to loop in an earlier discussion, the right people are at the table and the right people's voices are being heard and amplified in this discussion. Yeah, there's so many layers to this. Now my mind is like, this is probably the closest to a philosophy class that I'll ever take in my life. <laughs> I'm not sure that's good, but... Yeah, how have you never <laughs> taken a philosophy class, but that's like a whole other conversation. You've been in school for a long time. I've done that. Um, So you said that you're like possibly one of like a hundred or so bioethicists, right? So how do we get more of you into the conversations? (laughs) Because you have all these great insights that you're like bringing to the table and all these thought processes, right? Yeah. How do we get more people to go to school to do that, to work with that kind of thing and to actually like go into the world more? Because you're at a school that you have a bioethics program. When I was at NYU, they had just started building their bioethics program. It just became its own center when I left. Like, there's not a whole lot of them out there. So how do we get more people to transition from medicine ethics to bioethics at, like, the public health perspective? And then out into the world, because also, like, yeah, now I'm just, like, rambling, because I'm also thinking about, like, the UN and, like, the United Declaration of Human Rights and, like, how that's not really upheld anywhere, like, how? Mm-hmm. How? How? <laughs> how? So it's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, what's interesting is, is and I've been reflecting on this because I think about my field a lot, right? I mean, I think when I first graduated, I wasn't even uh, with my PhD, to be honest with you, Diana Susan, I wasn't even sure that I wanted to call myself a bioethicist because I felt so different. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, bioethics in North America, Western bioethics has been dominated by clinical ethics, right? Yeah. And research ethics in particular, which, by the way, we can talk about this if you want, are structures that I see unfortunately being replicated 
educated in global health ethics contexts, right, as well. Huh. So why that is is an interesting question. Why aren't there more people doing public health ethics? Another another term that's often been used for some of the kind of work that I'm interested in is called population level bioethics. I think it's that's similar. a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, similar, right? Yeah. Similar. And then there's global health ethics. That's there too. I think these are all very close cousins with each other, right? I think, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of difference. All of these are trying to separate themselves as distinct from the more dominant traditions in Western and North American bioethics that I just described. Why don't more people do this kind of work? I think a lot of times it's a response to, ra- to sort of quote unquote rational incentives, right? Okay. People who are looking at the work, like, for example, you all know this, what dominates our discussions of health policy in the US and in North America in particular? It's healthcare, right? Money. Yeah, yeah, money. Exactly. And money is a huge <laughs> part of it, right? Well, why are healthcare policy discussions dominating in the world of health policy? We do much less talking about public health policy than healthcare policy, right? Well, it's because it's the same thing, right? What percentage of the money that we spend on health goes to public health? Public and population health news says they've calculated. CDC's calculated, right? It's something like in 2007 and 2008, and I don't think it's changed all that much in 10 years. I don't think anybody does, right? We're talking about something like three to four cents out of every health dollar. It's probably gone down by I, now. Yeah, 95, <laughs> like 95% of what we spend on health, which is enormous around, right? We know yeah, 20% yeah. of our ungodly GDP is spent on health. You know, 95% of that is spent on healthcare and biomedical research related to healthcare. Right. And so naturally, when you move to policy discussions, what dominates the attention? Well, I mean, again, where's the funding? Where's the attention? Where are the resources? What do people care about? Quote unquote. Right. We know what that is. And so the policy discussions uh, focus on that. And then guess what? So does the work in bioethics, too. So do the people and the centers and the institutions and the funding that's available and all this stuff. It tends to dominate, you know, tends to follow these these well-worn pathways, which are just responding to, I think, pretty rational incentives in sort of larger, sort of larger discussions of policy and, and law to some extent and reimbursement as it affects health in the US. And so, you know, I think to change that, we would have to change some of that. And I think, you know, to be honest with you, public health ethicists like me, we haven't done a great job part because we're small and we yeah. don't have enough resources yet, I think. And we're about in time, we're about 30 to 40 years behind healthcare ethics. Okay. Huh. Right. So we're, we're, we're getting there, but it's going to be slow. So, for example, you can see some public health ethics things starting to crop into accreditation requirements for local county health mm-hmm. departments. LHDs now have some ethics requirements. They didn't used to 20 years ago. Right. Schools now public health have to show they have some basic ability to teach ethics. Right. That wasn't yeah. there 30 years ago as much. Right. Okay. So to some extent, you know, we have to do a better job of branding ourselves and making sure that we're sort of out there. And then I think also helping people understand some of the things we've already talked about, which is, look, you know, based on epidemiology alone, we've got to claim that the stuff that we're talking about is more important to overall public and population health, as well as more important to the compression of health inequalities than some of the other things which have traditionally tended to dominate bioethics discussion. Um, I can't tell you, like, our field is basically built on informed consent and genetics. Yeah, that's, that's so fine. True. I'm not saying there shouldn't be. I'm not saying there shouldn't be people who work on those things. There yeah, should yeah. be, but in terms of its dominance, I have trouble with that one. You know, it's yeah, just like yeah. I don't think so. Right? Those things are not as important to overall population health and its distribution than some of the other things that we talk that we should be sure. talking about. You know, yeah. I think making that case and then getting people to support it and money behind it um, is what's mm-hmm. needed. Now, when you're talking about like, okay, institutions like health county departments and schools for accreditation, including ethics as part of their curricula. Is that often read as, oh, we just need to teach about cultural competency? Yes. <laughs> okay. That's my shortest answer yet. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, and very problematic. And it's actually problematic for both, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of very good critique of cultural competency, which I think mostly is right on, to be honest with you. You know, yeah. thinking uh, deeply about diversity and representation and its role in structural injustice is hugely important and is fundamentally a part of, I think, any responsible applied ethics. So, for example, a lot of my teaching and my pedagogy that I do is actually centered on these things. You know, so, for example, I had a conversation yesterday about how to do actual training on racism, not disparities, not black box epi, you know, but we're going to name it. We're going to say this is racism, right? Full stop. That's what we're doing into training for residents, for example, for a certain group of residents. This was talking about pediatric residents in particular, you know, and that's a lot of the discussions that I have in a variety of different contexts. Yes, I think discussions of power and privilege and, 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 and sort of racism and, and the isms is what I say, right? Racism, uh-huh. sexism, ableism, ageism, et cetera, et cetera. These sort of structural axes of oppression and injustice. These things are very important topic for applied ethicists to be discussing. You know, I think when it gets commodified and packaged as cultural competency, it can become problematic for both ethics discussions and for discussions of representation and power. Sure. I'm going to backtrack a little bit because you started off saying like we have to distinguish between the individual and the population or the group. And when we when you were talking about the whole idea of cultural competency and how we approach it, I feel like even as when I read studies or things on cultural competency and public health, it's still kind of focused on the individual. Even with things like social determinants of health, you're like, oh, what is this individual's social determinants? Right. And we start looking at that way. What's like a really digestible way? way for someone who is having trouble separating the individual from the group? Like, how do you um, provide that picture for them? That's a different question. That's great. That's harder. I thought you were going to ask, how did we get here? And I had a whole... I said, you're asking, what would you do about it? Don't ask me to solve these problems. You know, right? uh, what would I do? So um, I think... Okay, so, so I'll cheat. I will okay. answer the question I was hoping you were going to ask as a way of answering the question you, you did ask. Hopefully, I'll get there. You, you, you'll, you will tell me. I know you'll tell me okay. if I didn't answer your question. But So one of the issues, and I actually just taught this. I teach, I'm teach. i really fortunate enough to teach a, um, a seminars to um, DRPH students in my school of public health. And the first seminar we're working on right now is the history of public health. And then next semester is ethics of public health. But the history class is not a straight history class. We do some history, but it's really more about sort of con- the, the history and conceptual foundations of the field of public So actually, it's a lot of the same kinds of discussion that we're having here. And the topic that we talked about this week is the medicalization of public health and the medicalization of public health policy in particular, which is something that Paula Lance and some of her colleagues have written most eloquently on. It was really sort of, it was mind blowing for me as a person that kind of changed. It was a, a 2007 paper and it kind of, I found it and then it kind of changed what I decided I wanted to do is that significant, uh-huh. right? So, um, but I actually think that's the problem. You ask why are so much of the, of the material that really should be focused on thinking about groups, even within public health, focused on individuals as the unit of change, right? And I think there, that has something to do with the fact that some of our public health interventions and priorities have been medicalized. And to the extent they've been medicalized, they start and look and smell like medical approaches and healthcare-based approaches, which again are focused on individuals, that's number one reason, right? Uh-huh. Um, the second reason is something I've actually written about. So, you know, what's the point of a podcast if I can't shamelessly self-promote, right? So, so, yeah. um, but it's actually referred to something that I have written about called methodological individualism. We do that way too much. And what that means in a public health context is the individual is the unit of change, right? Whatever agency, whatever intervention we're looking to evaluate, we rely on the individual 
as the unit right of change, mm-hmm. which is problematic for a whole bunch of different reasons, right? Um, one, it actually tends to expand inequalities. Whatever efficacy can be captured by these uh, these individualistic interventions depend on the resources that the individual can bring to bear, right? Which means people with more resources are more likely to be able to capture the benefits from these interventions, which means that the well-off are only going to be better off. We're going to expand inequalities. That's a huge problem. The second problem with it is that it actually tends not to work. And what what I mean by that is just basic evidence of efficacy, right? If it's really structural determinants that are powering health outcomes across and within populations, right, then we would expect that interventions have to operate on the structural level to be effective. Um, And lo and behold, when we actually do the evaluations, that's what we find, right? And so interventions which operate on the individual level uh, tend to be less effective, right? And it doesn't mean that we could never use any of those interventions. I like to think about something I call policy bundles, which means it's not just one thing in public or in global health. We usually have to do a whole bunch of different things, right? Uh, and so the idea that having these individualized interventions, um, which have been referred to, I think, fruitfully in the literature as agentic interventions, uh-huh. you know, um, having these agentic interventions, uh, you know, it, it's not the case that they have no place it's fine to have them. It's just wrong when that sorts to dominate the entire bundle and that our interventions are basically all individualized. So I think it reflects a medicalization. I think it reflects a preference for individualized approaches that we have in North America, particularly in the U.S. Um, And I think it also is problematic and we should change it. Are there examples of policies where it wasn't, the unit of change wasn't individual and it was successful? So I'm thinking of like, um, Western societies, definitely how we operate is much more individualistic, but then we have other societies where they operate as a group. And so I would assume that their policies would reflect that societal function. And so I'm wondering if there's a difference, like a marked difference in how successful these policies are. Yes, and I actually heard a couple different questions. So so the first question was some examples of ones Mm -hmm. that aren't structural. And then the second one is similarly, like, are there other places around the world that do it better and differently, that have that orientation? And the answer to the second question, which I'll uh, I'll start with for, I think, a couple of reasons, is um, yes, of course. Uh, In my view, to do social determinants of health work effectively, you have to be a bit of a comparativist, Mm -hmm. right? Um, because what you're really saying is, look, the, the way we structure our social and sort of economic institutions in a society are the major determinants of health and its distribution. So you want to look at different ways of structuring our social and economic institutions. You know, in places where they are more focused on, I think, a collective approach to population health, where they're really focused more on these upstream structural factors, they do be- they do it better. And unsurprisingly, those places are significantly healthier, right? So where are those places? Well, you know, there are some East Asian countries like Japan, where they do it really well. But of course, if you do social determinants of health, and I know you all are global health scholars, so you know this, right? But the, the one we all love, love and worship are the Nordic countries, you know? So for example, all of my students in all of my classes know that Sweden is jazz hands. <laughs> when I say Sweden or Sweden comes up in conversation, everybody raises their hands and starts doing jazz hands, right? And, and actually, when I say Sweden, for purposes of this, it really could be any of the Nordic countries. In this respect, they're not actually that different, right? Sweden, Norway, Finland, Iceland, Denmark, right? They're, they're not, I'm not saying they're the same places, but in their orientation to policy and public health and how they really try to target upstream structures through collective action and collective interventions, which are mostly social policies, you know, they do a lot better. And unsurprisingly, they live a lot longer. They have healthier, happier lives than we do right? Mm -hmm. We've done it before. And that goes to, I think, Susanna, your first question. Are there some examples? Um, We're not really very good at it in the United States, as I think you both probably know, (laughs) at least as well as I do. But there are examples. 
And the two examples I often use are, um, I use a historical example and a contemporary example. The historical example that I like is uh, sanitation. And the reason I like sanitation is because it hits with what's called the twin aims. So I think the best theories of health justice in general say we really want to focus on two things. The first thing we want to do is we want to lift everybody up, improve overall population health, but we also want to compress health inequalities. And we want to pick interventions that actually prioritize both of those at the same time, that maximize them both. And we don't do that very much in North America, in the US. We're actually pretty good at doing one and not the other. And the example there is smoking, right? We've reduced incidence of tobacco consumption pretty well in the US over the last 15, 20 years, which is great because it's lifted everybody else out. But the interventions we've chosen have tended to expand inequalities in smoking-related disease. Mm. which means that um, the affluent and those with more resources are better able to actually cease using tobacco or to not take up tobacco to begin with. And so we've actually sharpened our health inequalities as connected to SRD, which doesn't mean it's b- the overall improvement in health is bad, but it means it's not ethically optimal. So I'm looking for policies and interventions that hit both of those things, that both improve overall health at the same time they compress our inequalities. That's what we're looking for as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And the example that does that is sanitation. And the reason sanitation does that is because overall, the more sanitation we have in a population, and this has been documented late 19th, early 20th century, it lifted everybody up. The whole population got healthier when we had better sanitation infrastructure, but because wealthier people could afford toilets and to live in places that had a more advanced sewerage and infrastructures, right? The quantum of benefits that was captured for that was greater by the poor than the wealthy. So we lifted everybody else up and we actually contracted inequalities, health-related inequalities between the wealthy, the affluent, and the least well-off. And so that's as good as it gets as far as I'm concerned. Does it get more complicated for issues like vaccines, like how we have this vaccine anti-vax stuff going on right now? I find vaccines relatively uncomplicated ethically. Okay. What I mean by that is... You know, as an intervention, they're pretty good, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, I, I talk a lot about the medicalization of public health. You know, if someone were to fire back at me, and this goes back to one of your earlier questions, Susanna, and say, hey, what about vaccines? That looks like a medical intervention that has an enormous impact on public health. I'd say, yeah, that's the good example. Yeah. There's one good example, and that's it. And it's a good one, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, vaccines are enormously powerful. So ethically, it's like, should we have vaccination? I'm like, there's no controversy here. I mean, this is not an interesting dilemma, right? Now, it is, uh, of course, there's all sorts of very interesting, I think, sociological and anthropological and legal public health law issues about you know, vaccination exemptions and vaccine hesitancy and vaccine skepticism. So when I say I don't think it's interesting, I think what I don't mean it's not interesting. It's hugely and supremely interesting. But I just don't think it's ethically complicated. You know, should we prioritize vaccination as a public health policy? Yes. Uh You know, and seen basically, (laughs) right? You know, this one's easy. It's not a complicated, it's not not an ethical problem for me, you know? That's interesting. I did not expect you to be like, no question about it, of course. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the more interesting question, and again, uh-huh. shameless self-promotion claxon again, right? And I've written sure. on this. I have a colleague um, from a prior institution who's a medical folklorist, and she's actually the uh-huh. world expert on vaccination folklore, uh, which is very interesting. So so we, we've written something on this in a public health journal, actually. And so the more interesting questions to me are, look, vaccination is an unqualified good from a public health perspective. You know, obviously, from that perspective, it's, it's from a health perspective, it's problematic when our overall sort of vaccination rates in the population drop below certain levels. That's obviously problems uh-huh. for herd immunity and other, kind, and other kinds of things. So the real interesting question 
question here is how do we increase vaccination uptake? That's very interesting to me, right? And to some extent, I think we have some ethical obligations there, but that's also more of an empirical question, right? What works to actually improve and increase vaccination uptake and what doesn't? You know, things like shaming and yelling at people and and calling them stupid and and just trying to give them facts about vaccination, that does not work, you know? Um, And that's one thing if I could um, get on uh, another one of my hobby horses and yell at public health people, public health people are my people, by the way. So when I'm yelling, I'm yelling at my people, right? As an insider, not just tissing from the outside, right? But, you know, we have the deficit model is a crappy one, you know? And I mean the deficit model, both in terms of our health promotion and in terms of how we go about health policy. These people, whoever they are, they don't know stuff that I know. I know stuff. I'll tell them some stuff. Then they'll do what I think they should do. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just, you know, it's been really evaluated over and over again. We know it doesn't work. So the interesting questions are about how to increase vaccination uptake, you know? And for me as a public health law scholar and pick in particular is what legal and policy levers can we exercise to increase vaccination uptake in a population? All of those things are fine, I think. And those are where I find the sort of very interesting questions are. The issue of, you know, ought we as a population try to increase our vaccination uptake is not very interesting to me, ethically. Yes, uh, yeah. we should. Yeah. Um, just as you were uh, mentioning how to get that to happen, like, or how to increase uptake and how to talk to the people, but that's just with vaccines. But if you were to take how to talk to people and educate the people that aren't yelling at ourselves, yell, and then by ourselves, I mean, everyone else in public health and having these like, you know, middle to high level conversations, how would you talk to everyone else? How do you get them to see how to make change and like do things ethically and like how to proceed because or like even just honestly how to do anything like how do do (laughs) you exist (laughs) how do you change people's minds (laughs) but like also like going back because you were talking a little bit about how there's how you were teaching what is racism what is structural racism and there are people out there Mm -hmm. that don't believe in that right and like it's easy to discuss and have these kinds of conversations on like trying to be like no structural racism is a thing and that exists and there are so many other things that exist that so many people just turn a blind attitude they say that it doesn't exist but how do you talk to those people right because it's easy to talk to people that are on the fence or like already talking to ourselves that all agree Mm -hmm. but those other people are like what we need to do to try to break inequalities and like do everything and like just like you were talking about how people don't realize that having these interventions might better health and better quality of life for people that are able to access those things like how do you inform yeah well i mean i think that's a great question so and i think the first thing i'd say is you know you have to be realistic right and i think about this so i'm a you know i do a lot of work in public health on policy and i also have the advantage of having some actual policy experience the sausage making process you know so to speak you know and first things you have to understand is you can't get from zero to 11 in one thing Mm -hmm. there's nothing you're going to do that's going to convince someone who's at zero i think that they should be at 11. You know, I mean, you have to be realistic in your ask. You have to be realistic in, you know, if someone starts out at five, maybe I can get them to seven or eight, you know, but if they start at zero, I'm not going to get them to 11. It's just not going to happen, right? That's not how human behavior operates generally. I mean, maybe you can if you're with Clarence Darrow, but most of us aren't, (laughs) right? So, you know, I mean, so the first thing is realistic, just knowing there's definitely going to be a group of people who I or whoever is working to implement a particular intervention or if it's teaching exercise, you know, I'm not going to read and that's okay I think you have to be realistic about that so you know what can I do to get somebody from zero to three or somebody from five to eight you know or or these kinds of things and you know there I think especially in context of vaccination we actually have a lot of good evidence we just have to look in the right places and I think again that reflects the medicalization problems right facts about vaccination 
facts about pathophysiology, you know, and the science of vaccination and molecular biology. Those things are really important because without those things, we wouldn't have vaccines. You know, that language I don't think is likely to be very helpful in actually persuading people, right? So we have yeah. good evidence from things like health communication and, you know, um, risk and technical communication in particular, where people have actually studied this, social psychology. We want to look at belief formation. We want to understand how people process and understand risk and how ideas of fear and risk and how information travels, especially health information travels in communities. And we have good studies on all of these kinds of things, right? And then throwing in a plug for my colleague, the folklore of vaccination is probably significant. Understanding myth, belief, and legend, not for the purpose of debunking, because debunking doesn't work very well in a public health standpoint. In fact, it can actually make our problems worse. Right. So debunking, not a good, not a good way to go, to be honest with you. Right. So, so, but, but thinking about what does work and so here's the answer to your question, Diana, what does work? And again, this isn't my primary field of expertise, right? Because yeah. A, I'm not a comms researcher and B, I don't go out there and do this as a public health professional. Right. Yeah. But my understanding is what does work. So, you know, there are things that do work and things that don't work from a persuasive standpoint, narrative and stories tend to always be more powerful. So it's been shown, for example, that for those among us who had the misfortune, and this is all elderly people now, right, who've seen people die of vaccine preventable diseases, their stories like this happened to my sibling, you know, or, you know, I was, uh, you know, for for example, an older physician or an older public health nurse or something like that. You know, I saw this Uh happen to a child. Okay. Those kinds of things tend to have more weight and gravity. Sometimes forms of visual rhetoric can be more powerful. They can also be off-putting, so you have to be careful with that, right? But uh, sometimes videos and films and pictures, if they're done artfully and in an evidence-based manner, can be more persuasive in nudging people. Which I can see happening in, from the anti-vax side, right? There's a lot of very emotional, powerful stories that they um, put out there. Um, you know, like, I have been vaccine injured or I lost my child due to vaccine injury. And I think that that emotional um, narrative storytelling really does speak more than the facts-based papers or whatever that goes out there. Um, so that's interesting because I think... Like you said, the response we've been having is debunking these myths and, you know, a lot of science people coming in and even people who aren't public health professionals coming in and be like, these are the facts. Like, you're stupid for not knowing the facts. <laughs> and your story, yeah, no, your child isn't vaccine injured. You're just dumb. Like, that's the kind of approach that, yeah, yeah tends do- to dominate. It doesn't work. And you're absolutely right. And in fact, so, so people who work on policy, and you, I think you all probably know this, but, you know, we are suspicious of stories yeah. precisely because they are so powerful, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, we have gotten into trouble many, many times by making public health policies based on stories alone, right? I mean, it's it's a well-known secret in those of us who work on policy circles and who take sort of policy science seriously, that public health policy, and this is true for global health also in my view, you know, these policies are only rarely based on the best evidence. Yeah. Evidence is not what determines policy. I wish it was. Yeah. <laughs> it ain't. And we've got empirical studies for that too, right? It's not. And so these stories are really powerful. And so, yes, there's no question that when you, you know, you're trying to convince vaccine hesitant, vaccine skeptical people, you can come armed with stories, but they will come to armed with stories too. But I I have a question to kind of push you a little further on that because, yes, I agree that I think in terms of policy, we're very wary of stories. And I think that's also why qualitative data isn't really seen as hard evidence as quantitative data, especially in the policy realm. But then we're 
we're seeing, I think, a little bit of a shift where even in like climate change studies and everything, we're like, oh, listen to these stories of people who have directly been impacted by climate change in these ways. And the, the, that qualitative data is starting to be incorporated in research. But I'm just wondering, like, but there is, there are narratives that I feel like especially disadvantaged folks have been talking about for years. It's just that there's no money or resources to collect quantitative data and put out those results for policy purposes. But their narratives are just as valid and important. Um, so then how do we make room for those stories that are valid that actually can result in good policy changes without discrediting it just because historically, you know, like stories can be kind of dangerous for policy? Jeez, that's the, that's the tough question. <laughs> good Lord, that is an awesome question. I'm not saying you're the only one who asks it because I've mm-hmm. thought, sort of heard it and thought about, but but very, very sharp, important question. You know, I really think it's incumbent on those of us and I'm aware of standpoints. We haven't talked about it in this mm-hmm. podcast, but you know, you guys are two mm-hmm. women of color and I'm a cishet white guy and I, I always think about those things. And, and I actually yeah. mean that literally. I mean, what is our job like, you know, for people like me who are trying, if we want to do better and to use our privileges for good instead of for the evil that they have so often been used for, you know, um, mm-hmm. Are still all the time, you know. I think I think it's actually our responsibility to always be paying attention, you know, to whose voices are being amplified and who's not, you know. And I think you know you have to for, for people who are disempowered, they speak, but they often are don't have necessarily the power, you know, to make sure that their voices are being heard in the spaces that they need to be heard. And I want to be really careful here because there's also the risk of white man's burden on the other side, right? Mm-hmm. Of of the idea that it's white men who are going to come in and sort of save, you know, voices of marginalized and disadvantaged people. And that, of course, is problematic and it strips agency already away from already marginalized groups, which is much, mm-hmm. which is a terrible thing to do. So I want to be really careful about that, right? I mean, I think that, you know, the responsibility for making sure that the voices of disempowered and marginalized groups are heard does fall disproportionately on people who are empowered. That's true. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, it's not the case that it's, you know, sort of that empowered people like myself have to, t- you know, it's our responsibility to fix all of this for sort of, the, you know, sort of the poor and the, dis- the disenfranchised. That's 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 a dangerous path as well, right? And so yeah. I think, um, how do you do it? You know, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I found, for example, I mean, and this is just an example. All I can give you is a personal example. Is you know, you hear all those. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about mantles. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking about, you know, all these things where, you know, women and, and marginalized groups are, are not heard as much in a panel, uh, editorial positions on journals, all these things. And, I'll, and, mm-hmm. and as I sort of sort of progressed in the course of my career, I, I wanted to do better about these things. And so, for example, now I'm associate editor. I'm privileged enough to be associate editor of a couple different journals. So I get to help pick reviewers. Right. And so I'm making like, I'm always thinking about who, who gets to review and whose voices are heard. And I know I don't want to put excessive reviewing burdens on people who are already bearing more burdens, but you know, I really want to hear from women and people of color and make sure that they have a, a chance to shape the conversations that are going on in the fields in which I'm operating and things like that. And I have to be honest with you, I have found it surpassingly easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not hard. And the same thing is true. I've been, you know, in the fortunate position just a few times in the last few years to help pick speakers for a keynote talk, right? Or, yeah. or, or a panel. And it's not hard at all. There are lots <laughs> of bright, talented, able, interested, right? Women of color yeah. and, and members of marginalized groups, right? And, and members of LGBTQ, you know, all marginalized groups. I haven't, I found it surpassingly easy, yeah. to be honest with you, yeah. right? Um, you just have to look. 
Yeah. Right. And so to, to, to that was actually shameless self promotion. That was really humble brag, right? But but, but what I <laughs> um, what I meant was just as a way of trying to answer your question is what can we do to make sure that these important stories are being heard? Ask. Yeah, yeah. Go find them, right? Yeah. These people are out there. Mm-hmm. They're saying things. You just have to remember to listen, you know, and then to use your platform and your privilege to make sure that their voices are amplified. I don't find it very difficult. I personally have found it surpassingly easy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I think, you know, there was, there's all this, um, you know, the hashtag site black women that's been going on too. And then, you know, the argument is, well, no, maybe it's just that like journals are objective and unbiased that if you have good research, it'll be seen either way. It doesn't matter what what background you're in. And I think that's that's a very specific example of kind of this whole big thing we're talking about. It's like, no, structurally speaking, like the way that the journals are, it's not unbiased. No. It's not like there's a very big bias to it that but I think people because people are like, oh, science. <laughs> It's objective. <laughs> it's right? Like the, like the, meme, the, the gift, right? It's science, right? I mean, so yeah. first of all, we haven't talked about this, but one of my other areas of expertise is actually conflicts of interest, right? So mm-hmm. to the extent I work on issues of sort of structural violence and to the extent I work on issues of conflicts of interest, I am a scholar of motivated bias. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, there's no such thing as anything that's unbiased, period. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, if it's a human if it's a human convention, it's biased. I tell, I tell my students, <laughs> my learners this all the time. The only human that isn't biased is a human that is dead. <laughs> <laughs> Are you alive? Then you're boss, okay. right? And so, yeah. and so, you know, I mean, I think, look, rep, you know, I mean, you know, it, it, it's interesting. The argument that you have there, it's just science, it's subjective, is, is of course something that anybody with like a day of experience in a science and technology studies class, to be honest with you. I mean, it's so basic to some of the fields in which I move that we sort of giggle about it, right? And I'm a humanities and a public health trained scholar who operates, who's lived and operated on a health sciences campus for my entire career. I'm very familiar with this perspective, mm-hmm. you know? I mm-hmm. see it all, I hear seeing it all the time, which helps because I have some ways of dealing with it now that I probably didn't have <laughs> 10 years ago, 15 years ago, right? So, but you know, in response to that particular claim is, you know, to the extent that there's a reason that, for example, black women aren't cited in the scientific literature, we know what that reason is. Yeah. I know you guys do, right? But but not everybody's reason is racism. That's the reason, yeah. right? Yeah. Is, you know, they, they, they aren't as well represented in the scientific community because of plain old racism. Mm-hmm. The yeah. end. So yeah. using that that is an excuse not to continue to cite black women and do better is kind of from an ethical perspective i say you know you have some you have some problems there you might want to be working on right i mean ethically that's not a that's not a close call that doesn't sound right to me you know uh so so i think so and then so that's the first thing i'd say and that is why representation matters of course it's true right um um we have to be doing better at not just amplifying voices you know, but providing opportunities and resources to groups who have been systematically denied them for hundreds of years in this country, right? We need to do all of these things and more, right? So, you know, it's not just the one thing. But, you know, like I said, I just, I got to be honest with you, based on my perspective, I just, I just flatly disbelieve it. I just don't believe it. Yes, even with all the representation problems, guess what? Marginalized groups are awesome, right? I mean, I am a white man. And so I belong to many privileged groups, but I'm also Jewish. And I think, you know, sometimes it's easy for people to forget because Jew- white Jews have been relatively successful in North American society in particular, it's easy for us to get, for a lot of people to forget that, you know, I belong to a marginalized group, even though I don't necessarily experience that on a day-to-day basis because of my many, many privileges and the fact that I have white skin and I'm a cis man, right? But you know, I'm pretty proud of my people, to be honest with you. We've done some awesome things as far as I can tell, you know, and I don't think that's, I think that's from what I know about the history of other marginalized groups, they also have a lot to be proud of, you know, black people, um, Latinx people, Asian American people in this country. There's a lot of amazing things that have been done despite 
decades and centuries of systematic oppression. There are brilliant scholars in all of these fields out there. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we should find them and cite them. Yeah, yeah. The end. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and invite them on panels. Yeah, it's true. Exactly, <laughs> and mean, invite yeah. them to give keynote lectures. Yeah. I don't know. I, I know, like, I, I know that you were like, it's a humble brag you were saying before, but I just think it's so like good that you still gave all of those examples. So like for mm-hmm. anyone listening, if you have the power to just ask or look, they're all there. Everyone's there. We're all really loud. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. let's be real. We're really loud about <laughs> exactly. everything. It's I mean, not like we're I'll hiding. Give, we're not under yeah, rocks. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> well, I'll give one more example. So this is just, this cause this just happened. Like, so I yeah. gave a talk on addiction stigma on a panel. Cause that's something I work on stigma and addiction stigma in particular just uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. And at, in preparation for the panel, which was two white women, and myself mm-hmm. we're just preparing and they were saying okay so you know first speaker will do 10 minutes second speaker will do 10 minutes and then daniel will will let you have 20 minutes at the end and i said okay that's fine but i always try to pay attention to standpoints you know i realize i'm on a panel with two women and i'm the white guy so maybe it isn't the best thing for me to be speaking for twice as long as you all right maybe i should mm-hmm. just be decentered a little bit uh this was a phone call i didn't see anybody it wasn't a web conference so there was a stunned silence as soon as I said that. Um, and I was very anxious because I, I was like, oh no, did I just transgress? Because, you know, the thing is implicit yeah. bias comes for us all, right? And I can make mistakes just like yeah. anybody else, right? And so I was like, oh my God, did I just say something inappropriate? And then one of the women jumped into the conversation and said, she said in 20 years, she said, that's the first time I've ever heard a man say that. Um, uh-huh. And it's, again, this isn't a humble brag again, but but I was I was sort of humble, but I was also like, the fact that that's the first time she's ever heard a man say that is a problem. Yeah. Right? That should not be the first time if she's a 20 year professional that a white man said, maybe I should decenter myself from this particular, you know? You know? Um, We have a role to play, and I think we can do better. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Read through this. (laughs) That's a lot to process. Um, For us, it's easy to understand, like, yes, racism, yes, structural violence, yes, like, stigma against disabled folks, all that. Like, yes, that impacts health. Like, do people understand why or how? So, for example, we could talk about Thanksgiving and how it's a contentious time, especially for Indigenous folks in the United States. But why is that related to health? Like, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you look at the epidemiology is helpful. Social epidemiology is helpful because it tells us these differences in life expectancy. That's where I start with the data, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that, you know, epidemiologists, given a large enough sample size, epidemiologists consider a life expectancy difference of about 18 months to be significant. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's where we start to say, hey, it doesn't mean there's something ethically nefarious going on there. But we we start to say, hey, there this is a difference. Let's look into this difference. What's going on here? Right. When you look at differences, especially and and I think this is not just true. We can talk about Thanksgiving in the United States, but we can also talk about indigenous peoples in a global perspective. Right. Um, When we look at the differences in life expectancy between, you know, sort of privileged people, white white men, for example, in the U.S., and indigenous peoples in the U.S., we are finding enormous differences. You all know this, right? It's not 18 months. I guarantee you that, right? You know, we can find 5, 10, 15-year differences, 20-year differences in life expectancy sometimes, you know, within the United States, you know? Um, and, and you know, one of the things we always want to ask is how how did we get here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what has caused this, right? And there's a history. And, and, and if I had a whiteboard, I would draw this. I usually draw a sigmoid curve, like an S. You know, and the bottom is health outcomes. And this is a causal pathway, right? And you sort of can draw it all the way up. And of course, at the top are structural things. But it's like, here's the example I'll give. And this does relate to Thanksgiving. I've gotten into some knockdown drag out arguments with my dad. My dad is a physician scientist. Hmm. He is one of the principal investigators of the diabetes prevention program. 
He's a good guy. Okay. Right? But, and he wasn't involved in this, but we had this argument about all the genetic research that was being done on the Tohono O'odham with the Tohono O'odham people, the Pima Indians of the southwestern United States, right? Who have, uh, most people know, have the highest, uh, some of the highest rates of um, type 2 diabetes prevalence, incidence and prevalence in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're looking for these genetic markers. They're desperately trying to find these genetic things. They look over and over and over again. And of course, do they find a genetic thing? No, they don't. And the knockdown drag out <laughs> argument that I had with my dad, I was like, Dad, do you know anything about history? <laughs> Do you know what we right. did to yeah. the Tonal Otham people? Do you know what we did? It's, it's pretty well documented. I can show you, right? You don't have to yeah. be indigenous to read this history. We should read it as white yeah. people, right? Yeah. And then it's like, geez, I mean, it's not a mystery why, right? I mean, we basically systematically, I mean, we dammed the Gila River. We took away their, uh, their, their major form of subsistence. And then because we were starving, we gave them all sorts of foodstuffs and products, which totally changed their food ways and, and their way of, of eating. So, you know, and we impose incredible amounts of oppression and structural violence. And shockingly enough, that seems to connect to diabetes prevalence and yeah. incidence, right? I mean, that's right. not shocking at all if you know anything about epidemiology. So, you know, th- that's a way of answering this question. Should we be thinking about these things at Thanksgiving, um, about what we have done? And I really want to emphasize the agency, right, as mm-hmm. a society and as a community and are still doing, of course, to indigenous peoples, you know, in this country, Globally as well, of course, but in this country. And the answer is yes. And does that connect intergenerationally through processes of historical trauma and structural violence to profoundly unequal health outcomes and opportunities and resources available to indigenous peoples in this country? And the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't know the history, you're like a leaf that doesn't know it's part of a tree as far as Mm -hmm. I'm concerned. Um, And these are the stories that we should be telling around Thanksgiving, which is also a holiday that I grew up loving and have (laughs) in my in my old age have started to realize is kind of and by kind of I mean extremely (laughs) problematic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, everything is great, but it makes sense that you grew up loving it because like when I think of my childhood in elementary school, the way that I was taught everything is super messed up now in retrospect, but I didn't Mm -hmm. know any better. Like I was like a little kid. I was being taught that everyone was doing the same exact thing. Like, how would I, where would I have known if no one talked about it? Yeah, and I come from... It's still being taught. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I come from a family of immigrants. I mean, even though we're white, we're still desperate to Mm -hmm. assimilate in many ways, right? Yeah. You know, and so for us, it was like, you know, embracing sort of quintessentially American traditions was a huge part of what we were trying to do, you know? I mean, the critical lens that was needed, you know, you know, was going to be sort of, we were motivated to to be, to to not to look for it, so to speak. So it took a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I really like that part. You're a leaf that doesn't know you're part of a tree. That's great. That's really great. It's not mine. It's from Michael Crichton. That's right. Gotta gotta cite source, y'all. Otherwise, it's totally right? That's true. He's smart. He's smart, so I think it's okay. He was smart. Is there anything that you feel like we haven't touched on that you would really like to say? No. I know I'm like a freight train, so I appreciate you all sort of standing in the tracks, so to speak. No. I mean, this is all great. I wasn't... Yeah, I don't know. I I was just super excited to talk with you and see what you had to say, so... Yeah. Yeah, likewise. And that's the episode. Thank you so much, Daniel, for talking with us. As a reminder, you can reach him at prof underscore Goldberg on Twitter. Yes, and you can check our website for transcripts and any other resources for this episode. As a reminder, if you have any questions, you can always reach us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram or Twitter at globalcaveat. And thank you to all of our listeners and supporters for helping this podcast run. And a special thanks to Cordell Glass for producing our music. Thanks for listening.